0: letter ninety two part three of letters of john keats to his family and friends edited by Sidney colvin this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by nemo to george and georgiana keats april fifteenth this is the fifteenth of april you see what a time it is since i wrote all that time I have been day by day expecting letters from you I write quite in the dark in the hopes of a letter daily I have deferred that I might write in the light I was in town yesterday and at taylor's heard that young Birkbeck had been in town and was to set forward in six or seven days so I shall dedicate that time to making up this parcel ready for him I wish I could hear from you to make me whole and general as the casing air a few days after the nineteenth of april i received a note from haslam containing the news of his father's death the family has all been well haslam has his father's situation the Framptons have behaved well to him the day before yesterday i went to a rout at sawry's it was made pleasant by reynolds being there and our getting into conversation with one of the most beautiful girls i ever saw she gave a remarkable prettiness to all those common places which most women who talk must utter i liked mrs sawry very well sunday before last your brothers were to come by a long invitation so long that for the time i forgot it when i promised mrs Brawne to dine with her on the same day on recollecting my engagement with your brothers i immediately excused myself with mrs brawn but she would not hear of it and insisted on my bringing my friends with me so we all dined at mrs Brown's. i have been to mrs bentley's this morning and put all the letters to and from you and poor tom and me i found some of the correspondence between him and that degraded wells and amina it is a wretched business i do not know the rights of it but what i do know would i am sure affect you so much that i am in two minds whether i will tell you anything about it and yet i do not see why for anything though it be unpleasant that calls to mind those we still love has a compensation in itself for the pain it occasions so very likely to-morrow i may set about copying the whole of what i have about it with no sort of a Richardson's self-satisfaction—I hate it to a sickness—and I am afraid more from indolence of mind than anything else. I wonder how people exist with all their worries. I've not been to Westminster, but once lately, and that was to see Dilke in his new lodgings. I think of living somewhere in the neighbourhood myself. Your mother was well, by your brother's account. I shall see her perhaps tomorrow. Yes, I shall. We have had the boys here lately. They make a bit of a racket. I shall not be sorry when they go. I found also this morning, in a note from George to you and my dear sister, a lock of your hair, which I shall this moment put in a miniature case. A few days ago Hunt dined here, and Brown invited Davenport to meet him. Davenport, from a sense of weakness, thought it incumbent on him to show off and pursuant to that never ceased talking and boring all day till I was completely fagged out. Brown grew melancholy, but Hunt, perceiving what a complimentary tendency all this had, bore it remarkably well. Brown grumbled about it for two or three days. I went with Hunt to Sir John Lester's gallery. There I saw Northcote, Hilton, Bewick, and many more of great and little note. Hayden's picture is of very little progress this year. He talks about finishing it next year. Wordsworth is going to publish a poem called Peter Bell. What a perverse fellow it is. Why will he talk about Peter Bell's? I was told not to tell, but to you it will not be telling. Reynolds, hearing that said Peter Bell was coming out, took it into his head to write a skit upon it called Peter Bell. He did it as soon as thought on. It is to be published this morning, and comes out before the real Peter Bell, with this admirable motto from the bold stroke for a wife, I am the real Simon Pure. It would be just as well to trounce Lord Byron in the same manner. I am still at a stand in versifying. I cannot do it yet with any pleasure. I mean, however, to look round on my resources and means and see what i can do without poetry to that end i shall live in westminster i have no doubt of making by some means a little help on or i shall be left on the lurch with the burden of a little pride however i look in time the dilks like their lodgings at westminster tolerably well i cannot help thinking what a shame it is that poor dilk should give up his comfortable house and garden for his son whom he will certainly ruin with too much care the boy has nothing in his ears all day but himself and the importance of his education dilke has continually in his mouth my boy this is what spoils princes it may have the same effect commoners. mrs dilke has been very well lately but what a shameful thing it is that for the obstinate boy dilke should stifle himself in town lodgings and wear out his life by his continual apprehension of his boy's fate in westminster school with the rest of the boys and the masters every one has some wear and tear one would think that dilke ought to be quiet and happy but no this one boy makes his face pale his society silent and his vigilance jealous He would, I have no doubt, quarrel with anyone who snubbed his boy. With all this he has no notion how to manage him. Oh, what a farce is our greatest cares! Yet one must be in the pother for the sake of clothes, food, and lodging. There's been a squabble between Keene and Mr. Buck. There are faults on both sides. On Buck's the faults are positive to the question. Keene's fault is a want of genteel knowledge and high policy. The former writes navishly foolish, and the other silly bombast. It was about a tragedy written by said Mr. Buck, which, it appears, Mr. Keene kicked at. It was so bad. After a little struggle of Mr. Buck's against Keene, Drury Lane had the policy to bring it out, and Keene the impolicy not to appear in it. It was damned. People in the pit had a favourite call on the night of Buck, Buck, rise up! and Buck, Buck, how many horns do I hold up? Kotzebue, the German dramatist and traitor to his country, was murdered lately by a young student whose name I forget. He stabbed himself immediately after, crying out Germany, Germany. I was unfortunate to Miss Richards the only time. I have been for many months to see him shall i treat you with a little extempore when they were come into the fairies court they rang no one at home all gone to sport and dance and kiss and love as fairies do for fairies be as humans lovers true amid the woods they were so lone and wild where even the robin feels himself exiled and where the very brooks as if afraid hurry along to some less magic shade no one at home the fretful princes cried and all for nothing such a dreary ride and all for nothing my new diamond cross no one to see my persian feathers toss no one to see my ape my dwarf my fool or how i pace my otothician mule ape dwarf and fool why stand you gaping there burst the door open quick or i declare i'll switch you soundly and in pieces tear the dwarf began to tremble and the ape stared at the fool the fool was all agape the princess grasped her switch but just in time the dwarf with piteous face began to rhyme Oh, mighty princess Did you ne'er hear tell what your poor servants know but too well? Know you the three great crimes in fairyland? The first, alas, poor dwarf, I understand. I made a whipstock of a fairy's wand. The next is snoring in their company. The next, the last, the direst of the three, is making free when they are not at home. I was a prince, a baby prince, my doom. You see, I made a whipstock of a wand. My top has henceforth slept in fairyland. He was a prince, the fool, a grown-up prince, but he has never been a king's son since. A fellow snoring at fairy ball. Your poor ape was a prince, and he, poor thing, picklocked a fairy's boudoir. Now no king, but ape. So pray, your highness, stay a while. Tis sooth indeed. We know it to our sorrow. Persist, and you may be an ape to-morrow. While the dwarf spake the princess all for spite, Peeled the brown-hazel twig to lily-white, Clenched her small teeth and held her lips apart, Tried to look unconcerned with beating heart, They saw her highness had made up her mind, A quavering like the reeds before the wind, And they had had it, but, oh, happy chance! The ape, for the very fear, began to dance and grinned as all's ugliness did ache. She stayed her vixen fingers for his sake; he was so very ugly, then she took her pocket- mirror and began to look first at herself and then at him, and then she smiled at her own beauteous face again, yet, for all this, for all her pretty face she took it in her head to see the place women gain little from experience either in lovers husbands or expense the more their beauty the more fortune too beauty before the wide world never knew so each fair reasons though it oft miscarries she thought her pretty face would please the fairies my darling ape i won't whip you to-day Give me the picklock, sirrah, and go play. They all three wept, but counsel was as vain as crying cup biddy to drops of rain. Yet lingering by, did the sad ape forth draw the picklock from the pocket in his jaw. The princess took it and dismounting straight, tripped in blue silvered slippers to the gate and touched the wards. The door full courteously opened she entered with her servants three again it closed and there was nothing seen but the mule grazing on the herbage green end of canto twelve canto the thirteenth the mule no sooner saw himself alone than he pricked up his ears and said well done at least unhappy prince i may be free no more a princess shall side saddle me o king of otheti though a mule I every inch a king though fortune's fool well done for by what mr dwarfy said i would not give a sixpence for her head even as he spake he trotted in high glee to the knotty side of an old pollard tree and rubbed his sides against the mossed bark till his girths burst and left him naked stark except his bridle how get rid of that buckled and tied with many a twist and plate at last it struck him to pretend to sleep and then the thievish monkeys downward creep and filch the unpleasant trammels quite away no sooner thought of than a downy lay shammed a good snore the monkey-men descended in whom they thought to injure they befriended they hung his bridle on a top bough and off he went run trot or anyhow brown has gone to bed and i am tired of rhyming there is a north wind blowing playing young gooseberry with the trees i don't care so it helps even with the side wind a letter to me for i cannot put faith in any reports i hear of the settlement some are good and some bad last sunday i took a walk towards highgate and in the lane that winds by the side of lord mansfield's park i met a mr green our demonstrator at guise in conversation with coleridge i joined them after inquiring by a look whether it would be agreeable i walked with him at his alderman's after-dinner pace for near two miles i suppose in those two miles he broached a thousand things Let me see if I can give you a list. Nightingales, Poetry on Poetical Sensation, Metaphysics, Different Genera and Species of Dreams, Nightmare, A Dream Accompanied by a Sense of Touch, Single and Double Touch, A Dream Related, First and Second Consciousness, The Difference Explained Between Will and Volition, So say Metaphysicians from a Want of Smoking the Second Consciousness monsters the kraken mermaids southey believes in them southey's belief too much deluded a ghost story good morning i heard his voice as he came towards me i heard it as he moved away i had heard it all the interval if it may be called so he was civil enough to ask me to call on him in highgate good night later april sixteen or seventeen it looks so much like rain i shall not go to town to-day but put it off till to-morrow brown this morning is writing some Spenserian stanzas against missus miss Brown and me so i shall amuse myself with him a little in the matter of Spenser. he is to wheat a melancholy carl thin in the waist with bushy head of hair as hath the seeded thistle when in parl it holds a zephyr, air, it sendeth fair, Its light balloons into the summer air. There too his beard had not begun to bloom, No brush had touched his chin or razor sheer, No care had touched his cheek with mortal doom, But knew he was in bright as scarf from Persian loom, Ne cared he for wine or half and half, Knee cared he for fish or flesh or fowl, and sauces held he worthless as the chaff he's deigned the swineherd at the wassail-bowl. Knee with lewd ribalds said he cheek by jowl, knee with sly lemans in the scorner's chair, but after water-brooks the pilgrim's soul panted, and all's food was woodland air, though he would oft-times feast on gilly-flowers rare, the slaying of cities and no wise he knew, tipping the wink to him was heathen greek he slipped no olden tom or ruin blue or nance or cherry brandy drunk full meek by many a damsel horse and rouge of cheek nor did he know each aged watchman's beat nor an obscured purgulus would he seek for curled jewesses with ankles neat who as they walk abroad make tinkling with their feet The character would ensure him a situation in the establishment of patient griselda the servant has come for the little browns this morning they have been a toothache to me which i shall enjoy their riddance of their little voices are like wasp stings sometimes am i all wound with browns we had a claret feast some little while ago there were dilke reynolds skinner manker john brown martin brown and i we all got a little tipsy but pleasantly so i enjoy claret to a degree later april eighteen or nineteen i have been looking over the correspondence of the pretended amina and wells this evening and i see the whole cruel deception i think wells must have had an accomplice in it amina's letters are in a man's language and in a man's hand imitating a woman's the instigations to this diabolical scheme were vanity and the love of intrigue it was no thoughtless hoax but a cruel deception on a sanguine temperament with every show of friendship i do not think death too bad for the villain the world would look upon it in a different light should i expose it they would call it a frolic so i must be wary but i consider it my duty to be prudently revengeful i will hang over his head like a sword by hair i will be opium to his vanity if i cannot injure his interest he is a rat and he shall have ratsbane to his vanity i will harm him all i possibly can i have no doubt i shall be able to do so let us leave him to his misery alone except when we can throw in a little more the fifth canto of dante pleases me more and more it is the one in which he meets with Paolo and francesca i had passed many days in rather a low state of mind and in the midst of them i dreamt of being in that region of hell the dream was one of the most delightful enjoyments i ever had in my life i floated about the whirling atmosphere as it is described with a beautiful figure to whose lips mine were joined as it seemed for an age and in the midst of all this cold and darkness i was warm even flowery tree-chops sprung up and we rested on them sometimes with the lightness of a cloud till the wind blew us away again i tried a sonnet upon it there are fourteen lines but nothing of what i felt in it oh that i could dream it every night as hermes once took to his feathers light when lulled Argus, baffled, swooned and slept, so on a Delphic reed my idle sprite, so played, so charmed, so conquered, so bereft, the dragon world of all its hundred eyes, and seeing it asleep, so fled away, not to pure with its snow-cold skies, nor on to Tempe, where Jove grieved that day, but to that second circle of sad hell where in the gust, the whirlwind, and the flaw of rain and hailstones, lovers need not tell their sorrows. Pale were the sweet lips I saw, pale were the lips I kissed, and fair the form I floated with about that melancholy storm. I want very much of a little of your wit, my dear sister, a letter or two of yours just to bandy back a pun or two across the Atlantic and send a quibble over the floridas now you have by this time crumpled up your large bonnet what do you wear a cap do you put your hair in papers of a night do you play the miss birkbecks a morning visit have you any tea or do you milk and water with them what place of worship do you go to the quakers the moravians the unitarians or the Methodist? are there any flowers in bloom you like Any beautiful heaths, any streets full of corset-makers? What sort of shoes have you to fit those pretty feet of yours? Do you desire compliments to one another? Do you ride on horseback? What do you have for breakfast, dinner, and supper, without mentioning lunch and beaver, and wet and snack, and a bit to stay one's stomach? Do you get any spirits? Now you might easily distill some whiskey, and going into the woods, set up a whiskey shop for the monkeys. Do you and the Miss Birkbecks get groggy in anything? A little so soish so's to be obliged to be seen home with a lantern. You may perhaps have a game at Puss in the corner. Ladies are warranted to play at this game, though they have not whiskers. Have you a fiddle in the settlement, or at any rate a juice-harp? which will play in spite of one's teeth when you have nothing else to do for a whole day i tell you how you may employ it first get up and when you are dressed as it would be pretty early with a high wind in the woods give george a cold pig with my compliments then you may saunter into the nearest coffee-house and after taking a dram and look at the chronicle go and frighten the wild boars upon the strength you may as well bring one home for breakfast Serving up the hoofs, garnished with bristles and a grunt or two, to accompany the singing of the kettle. Then, if George is not up, give him a colder pig, always with my compliments. When you are both set down to breakfast, I advise you to eat your full share, but leave off immediately on feeling yourself inclined to anything on the other side of the puffy. Avoid that, for it does not become young women after you have eaten your breakfast keep your eye upon dinner it is the safest way you should keep a hawk's eye over your dinner and keep hovering over it till due time then pounce taking care not to break any plates while you are hovering with your dinner in prospect you may do a thousand things put a hedgehog into george's hat pour a little water into his rifle soak his boots in a pail of water Cut his jacket round into shreds like a Roman kilt or the back of my grandmother stays. Sew off his buttons. Later. April 21st or 22nd. Yesterday I could not write a line I was so fatigued. For the day before I went to town in the morning, called on your mother, and returned in time for a few friends we had to dinner. These were Taylor, Woodhouse, Reynolds. We began cards at about nine o'clock, and the night coming on, and continuing dark and rainy, they could not think of returning to town, so we played at cards till very daylight, and yesterday I was not worth this expense. Your mother was very well but anxious for a letter. We had half an hour's talk and no more, for I was obliged to be home. Mr. and Mrs. Millar were well, and so was Miss Waldegrave. I've asked your brothers here for next Sunday. When Reynolds was here on Monday, he asked me to give Hunt a hint to take notice of his Peter Bell and the Examiner. The best thing I can do is to write a little notice of it myself, which I will do here and copy out if it should suit my purpose. Peter Bell There have been lately advertised two books, both Peter Bell by name what stuff the one was made of might be seen by the motto i am the real simon pure this false florimel has hurried from the press and obtruded herself into public notice while for aught we know the real one may be still wandering about the woods and mountains let us hope she may soon appear and make good her right to the magic girdle the pamphleteering archimage we can perceive has rather a splendid love than a downright hatred to real florimels, if indeed they have been so christened, or had even a pretension to play a bob cherry with Barbara Luthwaite, but he has a fixed aversion to those three rhyming graces, Alice Fell, Susan Gale, and Betty Foy, and now at length especially to Peter Bell, fit Apollo. It may be seen from one or two passages in this little skit, that the writer of it has felt the finer parts of mr wordsworth and perhaps expatiated with his more remote and sublimer muse this as far as it relates to peter bell's unlucky the more he may love the sad embroidery of the excursion the more he will hate the coarse samplers of betty foy and alice fowle and as they come from the same hand the better will be able to imitate that which be imitated to wit peter bell as far as can be imagined from the obstinate name we repeat it is very unlucky this real simon pure is in parts the very man there is a pernicious likeness in the scenery a pestilent humor in the rhymes and inveterate cadence in some of the stanzas that must be lamented if we are one part amused with this we are three parts sorry That an appreciator of Wordsworth should show so much temper at this really provoking name of Peter Bell. This will do well enough. I have copied it and enclosed it to Hunt. You will call it a little politic, seeing I keep clear of all parties. I say something for and against both parties and suit it to the tune of the examiner. I meant to say I do not unsuit it and I believe i think what i say nay i am sure i do i and my conscience are in luck to-day which is an excellent thing the other night i went to the play with rice reynolds and martin we saw a new dull and half damned opera called the heart of midlothian that was on saturday i stopped at taylor's on sunday with the woodhouse and passed a quiet sort of pleasant day i have been very much pleased the panorama of the ship at the North Pole, with the icebergs, the mountains, the bears, the wolves, the seals, the penguins, and a large whale floating back above water. It is impossible to describe the place. End of Letter 92, Part 3